0: The History of the World Podcast. Written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 47. The Hundred Years' War. The Hundred Years' War was not a formal war, and it didn't last for a hundred years. 19th century historians neatly packaged a set of conflicts between the English and the French into a period of roughly a century, but in reality the conflicts were not always concurrent with each other, with tensions heightening and easing throughout. This was certainly not the first time that tensions between England and France were raised. There is an argument to say that when the Plantagenet King Henry II ruled England during the 12th century that there began a long period of increased tension between the Plantagenets and the Capetians who were the ruling dynasty of France that could just as easily be labelled as a Hundred Years' War. The Hundred Years' War that is the one recognised as being the most obvious owner of the name started in the 14th century when King Edward III of England decided that he had a claim to the French throne. By the end of the Hundred Years' War, King Edward III of England was a distant memory of history. Relations were strained between the English and French thrones. The biggest problem was that a French dynasty was the ruling dynasty in England, the Plantagenets, and a lot of Plantagenet territories in the latter half of the 12th century were within the French kingdom. With England trying to establish itself as on a level footing with France, it didn't really suit England to have lands that were subject to the French crown, and equally it was troubling for France to have such a powerful landowner within its own kingdom. It was always likely that things were going to come to a head eventually. The French seized a lot of Plantagenet territory, more commonly referred to as Angevin territory because the Plantagenet dynasty originally came from Anjou and the French did this in the early 13th century. The beginnings of the period known as the Hundred Years' War starts with the beginnings of a succession crisis in the Kingdom of France. During the reign of King Edward I of England, who was Edward III's paternal grandfather, the Kingdom of France was being ruled by a Capetian king, Philip IV, who was the very same Edward III's maternal grandfather. King Philip IV of France had four children by his queen consort, Queen Joan I of Navarre. One of these children was a daughter called Isabella, who was married to the heir to the English throne, the boy who would become King Edward II of England. The three sons would all become the King of France, and they would all die while relatively young. The eldest son, who ruled as Louis X, died from an inflammatory chest condition. His wife was still carrying his male heir, who became King John of France on the occasion of his birth, until he died at just five days old. The second surviving son of Philip IV ruled as King Philip V of France, who had four daughters and no male heirs. Females were excluded from the French throne. So the third surviving son had to rule France as Charles IV. But even he could not produce a male heir. So the French had to decide what to do. There were two candidates for the French throne. Charles IV's sister... Isabella was the mother of King Edward III of England who was the only male heir that was a descendant of Philip IV. There was also a male who was a descendant of Philip IV's father, Philip III. He was a grandson of Philip III, also called Philip. Philip's father was Charles, another son of Philip III and Charles was the Count of Valois. The French nobility decided against having the English king as their own king and opted for this cousin called Philip. Philip would be crowned as Philip VI and this was the beginning of the House of Valois as the ruling house of France. Edward was made to pay homage to Philip for Edward's lands of Aquitaine that were still a part of France. Philip would push his luck even further by insisting that Edward declare Philip as his liege lord, which effectively meant that Edward was Philip's man. Edward had to ride out these humiliations as France was more powerful at this time than England. And, Edward was still trying to score victories against the Scots. England was rarely able to deal militarily with both Scotland and France simultaneously. Edward had scored a decisive victory against the Scots at the Battle of Hallidon Hill in thirteen thirty three, and then it started becoming obvious that the tensions between England and France were becoming unignorable. French troops, intended for crusades, were redeployed to Normandy and Edward had begun to raise taxes to fund a new army. In 1337, Edward refused to pay homage to Philip. So Philip confiscated Edward's lands and so Edward decided to go to war declaring Philip as a usurper of the French crown. Something that Edward laid claim to. The Edwardian Phase. Edward's invasion of Philip's lands was an expensive undertaking, and Philip was likely very aware of Edward's limitations. Edward would be limited to rallying the support of Low Country realms especially Flanders, in his bid to claim his proclaimed right to the crown of France. It enabled Edward to make some raids into French territories, but Edward soon ran out of money and went back to England. Philip had been able to resist engaging fully, choosing to frustrate Edward instead and save his own resources. Edward managed to gather a fleet of over 100 ships and cross the North Sea to Flanders where a French fleet would be blocking one of the waterways inland at a place called Slush. The French fleet outnumbered the English fleet but the French decision to connect their ships to form a barricade ultimately caused problems with their navigational abilities and the English were able to pick the French fleet off one by one. Around 18,000 men were killed on the French side. English victory, on a practical level, only served to disrupt French ambitions to dominate the waterways between the two countries, but on a psychological level, gave the English a belief that they could take on their wealthier neighbours. However, Edward could not financially afford to capitalise once again, and Edward requested a five-year truce. Although there was a truce, there was an inevitability of conflict resuming once again. And the succession crisis in the Duchy of Brittany caused both Edward and Philip to back rival candidates. The lands of Brittany would have huge strategical importance for both sides. If the English gained access to the ports of Brittany, then they could land forces on the continent relatively unchallenged. Edward couldn't quite secure Brittany, but the French were still unable to prevent him from crossing the Channel and landing at Normandy instead in July 1346. From his landing on the Coton Peninsula, Edward would embark on a chevauchée, which is best described as a series of raids. The raids would take place as the huge English army travelled through the lands of northern France, debilitating the French and stabilising the English. The English would travel east to the Seine River, before following the river almost as far up as Paris, before turning north and travelling to the mouth of the Somme River. At this point it was the French who were financially exhausted, and with attacks also coming at them from the Flemish border, things were looking difficult. Philip had no choice but to deal with Edward, and so he would pursue him on his northward journey to the mouth of the Somme. The two armies met in battle at the Battle of Cressy. Edward was just 33 years old, and remarkably, he was accompanied by his 17-year-old son, also called Edward. Edward and remembered to history as the Black Prince. Even at this tender age, Edward the Black Prince played an important role in command of the English vanguard. The English archers devastated the French forces, and the English victory at Cressy enabled them to head north to the important port city of Calais, and after a lengthy siege, take it, populate it, and then head home, having secured an eight-year truce. In 1348, the Black Death spread northwards through France and onto England, which made further hostilities impossible. The Black Death was a sudden and widespread wave of the plague that was highly contagious and highly deadly. Estimates of around a third of the population of northern France and England were dramatically wiped out completely changing the nature of feudal society. King Philip VI of France died in 1350 in his mid-fifties. He left behind a country that was not willing to exhaust any further resources on warfare against the English, and a country that had been devastated by the Black Death, a disease that had also taken the life of Philip's Queen, Joan, the year before. Philip's eldest son would become King John II of France and he would inherit a kingdom fighting against internal revolts. Despite John's constraints, he would look to impose some authority in Brittany and Aquitaine with limited success due to the state of his own kingdom. John was strongly encouraged to enter peace negotiations with England, including by Pope Innocent VI, and so the resulting Treaty of Guine was signed by both parties. The treaty would cede Anjou, Aquitaine, Maine, Normandy, Poitou and Touraine to England, but not the French crown, so neither side would be fully satisfied with the result but Edward of England would be the much happier of the two. John rejected the treaty as soon as he was able to rally the support to oppose it, much to the dismay of the Pope. The year after the expiration of the original peace treaty, in 1355, Edward III would plan a new offensive against France. Edward III and his fourth son, John of Gaunt would each lead offensives into the north of France. Edward's first son, Edward the Black Prince, would attack from Aquitaine. Edward the Black Prince would conduct his own chevauché, raiding the towns of the countryside on his journey towards Paris. King John II of France decided to challenge the advance of Edward the Black Prince, and so John crossed the Loire River and met Edward the Black Prince near the city of Poitiers. The ensuing Battle of Poitiers in September 1356 was a battle that Edward the Black Prince wanted to avoid, but John II forced Edward's hand. The French had superior numbers, so the English would deploy their archers in order to keep the French at distance. This ploy just as in the Battle of Crécy a decade previous, proved to be a fortune swinger for the English. The English capitalised on the chaos among the French ranks by rushing them and engaging in close quarters combat. The French retreated, so the English retrieved their arrows and began to fire them again. As the French considered retreat, King John II decided to attack again. This time the English surrounded the French king and his closest bodyguards and subsequently overran them all capturing the king. King John II of France had been captured by the heir to the English throne Edward the Black Prince. John was taken to England with a ransom of 3 million ecus demanded for his release. The ecu was a French coin that could also be referred to by the English as a crown. The sum of three million is something that the French kingdom would ordinarily take two or three years to accrue, so it was considerable. John would be allowed to return to his kingdom to raise the funds and would allow his son, Louis of Anjou, to be taken as a captive to secure John's loyalty to the agreement. Louis would escape from the English Pale of Calais, however. And although this was good for Louis, it was not good for his father John, and John knew it. John would voluntarily give himself up to the English, but this time, when he returned to England, John would die in captivity in 1364, which took all of the momentum out of England's pressure. The Caroline Phase While King John II of France was in captivity with the English, affairs of state were being overseen by his son, Charles. Charles had done his best to raise taxes in order to secure his father's release and put down a major peasant revolt called the Jacquerie. On his father's death in captivity, Charles would accede to the French throne to rule as King Charles V, but his first priority would be to aid the recovery of the French economy. Both Charles V of France and King Edward III of England had made considerable improvements to the mechanics of their central governments, with Charles also reforming his army into a full-time military force paid a wage for their service. The 14th century was the century of the origin of the title Prince of Wales for the heir to the English throne with Edward's father who became King Edward II of England becoming the first English heir to receive this title. It was also the century of the origin of the title Dauphin for the heir to the French throne with Charles V earning the title before his father's death. The Dauphin was actually the head of the historical French province of Dauphine of Viennois in the southeast of the country. The English were in a strong position against the French following the successes of the previous decade, so the pressure was on the French king to demonstrate to his unsettled kingdom that he would improve the situation. Charles would target the relationships he had with other royal houses in order to try to deny the English any further power on the continent. His brother, Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, married Margaret of Flanders. Flanders had been an ally of the English earlier in the century, so to see the heir to the county married to the French royal family was a great concern for England. Charles was also successful in promoting French influence and friendship within the Duchy of Brittany, an important geographical location between the English and the French. Charles would also oversee the instatement of a pro-French monarch on the Castilian throne in Henry II. The significance of this is that Castile bordered the English Duchy of Gascony within Aquitaine. the English Duchy would now be surrounded by enemies. As for the English royal house, King Edward III was approaching his 60s and had become old and lethargic. He had been blessed with his eldest son and heir, Edward the Black Prince, demonstrating the same military energy during his adult years, and Edward himself had fathered his own eventual heir, also called Edward. However, by the turn of the 1370s, Edward the Black Prince was suffering from illness. His firstborn son, Edward, was just five years of age when he was stricken by bubonic plague, which took his life. Edward the Black Prince returned to England in poor health and in grief. After struggling on and battling his illness, it would be dysentery that would claim Edward the Black Prince's life at just 45 years of age. It would not be long after that that King Edward III became ill with an abscess knowing that he had lost his brave and successful son and heir and the following year he too died at the age of 64. This meant that the throne of England would pass down to the second son of Edward the Black Prince who at just 10 years of age ruled England as King Richard II. While all of this misfortune was befalling the English royal family, the French were chipping away at their lost lands, reclaiming what they had lost under the reign of John II. It would not be long after that that King Charles V of France also died in the year 1380, so although momentum had favoured the French and although lost lands were now being regained, a lack of finance and strong leadership would now slow the momentum and just like England a child king would accede to the french throne charles's 11-year-old son who would rule france as king charles the 6th under the regency of others the french would continue to try to raise taxes for their war efforts against the english but the momentum of the war had slowed down with both countries paying the price for their battles against each other and child kings now on the thrones of both nations significant revolts by the peasantries occurred on both sides of the English Channel. King Richard II of England would grow into adulthood with a group of aristocrats controlling the English government called the Lord's Appellant. Richard would show favour to some select individuals and the Lord's Appellant were in total opposition to this attitude. Significantly, one of the members of the Lord's Appellant was Richard's cousin, Henry Bolingbroke the Earl of Derby, who himself was the son of Richard's uncle, John of Gaunt. Richard exiled Henry, but Henry returned in the year 1399 and overthrew Richard, deposing and replacing him as the King of England, ruling as King Henry IV. Henry's reign involved a lot of management and opposition movements in both Scotland and Wales. Meanwhile in France, King Charles VI of France had come of age but it became clear that he was suffering from mental illness. This illness made it difficult for Charles to rule his kingdom directly but there were two different factions battling for control of the regency. The two factions were the Armagnacs and the Burgundians and their conflict escalated to a civil war. The Armagnacs were led by Charles's younger brother, Louis, Duke of Orléans, and the Burgundians were led by Charles' cousin, descended from King John II, and he was called John the Fearless. During this period, King Henry IV of England revived the claim of his grandfather, Edward III, that he should be the true King of France. The Lancastrian phase Henry IV was the son of Edward III's son, John of Gaunt. John of Gaunt was the Duke of Lancaster while he was alive and so the usurping branch of the English royal family under Henry IV were known to history as the Lancastrians. Henry IV was suffering from ill health and was becoming increasingly reliant on his son, also called Henry, to run the country. The Burgundians were in control of Paris when King Henry IV of England died in 1413 and he would be succeeded by his son who would rule as King Henry V. When the Burgundians were run out of Paris by the Armagnacs shortly after Henry V's accession, they would open negotiations with the English king, but the English king had his own ambitions towards the French crown and didn't need to wait for an invitation from the Burgundians to assert himself on the civil war going on in France. Henry V would demand to be named as the heir to the French throne after the end of the reign of King Charles VI, whenever that may come. With the French preparing to negotiate their way out of Henry's bold demands, Henry very keenly prepared to go to war. Henry took a huge military force over the English Channel, but it took Henry longer than he may have expected to take the seaport town of Arfleur, now dwarfed by the modern seaport of Le Havre, at the mouth of the Seine River. This gave the French the opportunity to amass a much larger force in order to combat Henry's invasion. Plague had also hit the English army, and now a march on Paris seemed out of the question. So Henry's backup plan was to emulate the journey of his great-grandfather, King Edward III, and reach the English-controlled Pale of Calais. Henry's journey would not be as straightforward and dominating as Edward's as the French army were attempting to head him off at every move. Henry's army began to run low on supplies but the French still preferred to track Henry rather than engage with him. Henry didn't have the luxury of time on his side to delay and felt compelled to fight his way through to Calais and so he launched an attack near the woods at Agincourt. Henry had managed to force the French into an engagement on his terms by goading them into a battlefield flanked by woodland and this enabled Henry to deploy his longbowmen to attack the French army from the flanks. The French knew from experience that this was the English strength but they were still helpless to prevent the sheer chaos caused by the shower of arrows the French were in total disarray and Henry showed absolutely no mercy by slaughtering as many French soldiers and prisoners as possible. The defeat at the Battle of Agincourt in 1415 not only allowed the English to start dominating the lands of northern France but also allowed the Burgundians to pressurise the Armagnacs in Paris in the ongoing French civil war. The Armagnacs couldn't resist the combined oppression of the English and the Burgundians. While the English continued to conquer towns in the north, the Burgundians moved in on the city of Paris. The heir to the French throne, the Dauphin Charles, who was the son of King Charles VI of France, escaped Paris. The Dauphin would appeal to the leader of the Burgundians, John the Fearless, to agree a truce for the sake of France. But when the two parties met at the town of Montereau, upriver from Paris on the Seine River, the entourage of the Dauphin assassinated John the Fearless. John's son Philip became the new Duke of Burgundy and he would quickly favour the English over the Armagnacs. King Henry V of England was able to force the Treaty of Troyes in 1420 on King Charles VI of France which enabled Henry to marry Charles's daughter Catherine of Valois. The Dauphin of Charles was declared illegitimate and the offspring of King Henry V and Catherine of Valois would be the rightful heirs to the Crown of France. The following year, Catherine would give birth to a male baby who would be called Henry and would be the heir to both the English and French thrones. In the following year, 1422, King Henry V was campaigning again in France when he contracted dysentery and died at the age of 35. Just two months later, the mentally fragile King Charles VI also died at the age of 53. This meant that officially King Henry's son, no more than a year old, was the new King Henry VI of England and was supposed to be the new King Henry of France. The ongoing English campaigns in France were continued by Henry V's brother, John of Lancaster, Duke of Bedford, who was very effective. However, the English Parliament were becoming increasingly reluctant to fund these campaigns. Both the Bretons of Brittany and the Burgundians were gauging the situation in France very closely. Neither of them wanted to be on the wrong side when the final decision would be made about who was the legitimate King of France. Was it the King of England, Henry the Sixth, Or would it be the dishonoured Dauphin, Charles? The English decided that they needed to make a move before the momentum of support started to shift back in the direction of the Dauphin. Thomas Montagu, Earl of Salisbury, would lead a force to besiege the strategically important central city of Orléans in 1428. John of Lancaster, Duke of Bedford felt that Anjou would be a better target but Montague wanted to press on and gain control of the important Loire River. The siege was not even a month in before Montague was wounded by a cannonball and subsequently died of gangrene. His post was taken up by William de la Pole, first Duke of Suffolk who continued the siege. Meanwhile, elsewhere, a young peasant girl called Joan from the town of Domremy approached the Dauphin Charles and pleaded with him to send support to the town of Orleans. And so he did, and he sent the peasant girl with the support also. While the military support distracted the English, Joan would enter Orleans with supplies and this would be enough for the French to tip the balance of power enough that the English would become tired and give up on the siege. Following this, the Dauphin underwent an official coronation and would be declared as King Charles the Seventh of France. But this coronation was not recognised by the English nor their supporters who still regarded King Henry VI of England as the true French king. Charles was an adult ruling in his own right while Henry was still just a child. Charles was able to switch the momentum in the French favour as Charles started taking northern towns back from the English. The English were very disjointed in their opinions about what to do next. Whether they should attempt to fight back against the French momentum or whether to sue for peace. A critical point in the recovery of the French crown was in 1435 when a congress was called in the town of Arras in northern France between England and France but when the English contingent arrived they were a little surprised to find a Burgundian representation actually led by Duke Philip III also known as Philip the Good son of the assassinated Duke of Burgundy John the Fearless, who if you recall was murdered by an entourage accompanying King Charles VII back when he was the Dauphin. The French put the pressure on the English to recognise Charles as the rightful King of France during this protracted congress that lasted over six weeks. The English refused to do this. About a week before the end of the congress... The man who had taken over the military command of the English armies in France from Henry V after his untimely death, his brother, John of Lancaster, Duke of Bedford, actually died himself and Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, signed a treaty recognising Charles as the true King of France. How much of a factor the death of John of Lancaster had on the feelings of the Duke of Burgundy's position is debatable. But the defection of the Burgundians from the side of the English to the side of the Armagnac French was a hugely significant event in the overall fortunes of the Hundred Years' War. The recognition of Charles VII as the true king of France by the Burgundians allowed Charles to enter Paris unchallenged. From 1435 onwards, the English were helpless to prevent the French from chipping away at their possessions in northern France and in Aquitaine. By the year 1451, the English had been pushed back into the Pale of Calais, with all of their other northern possessions now lost. The city of Bordeaux in Aquitaine fell to the French in the same year. But the people of Bordeaux had been under Plantagenet rule since their Duchess Eleanor of Aquitaine married King Henry II of England around 300 years earlier so they did not appreciate French conquest. Subsequently, the English attempted to regain the city under the leadership of John Talbot, the 1st Earl of Shrewsbury, the following year. The French were preparing for the return of the English and the English were able to reclaim Bordeaux with ease due to the support of the townspeople. The next year was 1453, and a French army with the support of the Duchy of Brittany entered the Gascony region of Aquitaine in order to deal with the English problem. The resulting Battle of Castillon saw the French really punish the English with the use of guns really helping to reduce the English numbers. The support of the Breton Cavalry made any kind of chance of English success quite impossible and Talbot was killed on the battlefield. After this decisive victory, the French retook Bordeaux and English influence over any territory in southern France was gone. The Pale of Calais in the north was the only English possession left on the French mainland. The English may have planned to return again, but the mental health of King Henry VI of England, now in his thirties, deteriorated and he would have to face a new threat in his homelands from the Yorkists, who were making a claim for his throne, claiming the Lancastrian kings were illegitimate usurpers after Henry's grandfather, Henry IV, deposed Richard II. This meant that there was nothing left to make any claim that he had to the French throne respectable and that now his energies needed to be concentrated on the civil decay of his own kingdom of England. King Charles VII of France started to experience a decline in his physical health after this time, a time that we can cite as the end of the Hundred Years' War. And he would eventually die in 1461 to be succeeded by his son who would rule as Louis XI and refused to come to his father's bedside while he slipped away from mortal life on earth after Charles had exiled him some years before. Thank you very much indeed for listening to this week's episode of... The History of the World podcast and it was on the Hundred Years War and it was full of medieval battles and uh, chivalry and and all the rest of it. So thank you so much for listening and um, if you enjoyed the episode and you enjoy the podcast generally and you want to support the podcast then don't forget to click on the Patreon link. If you go to the the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website you will see the link for Patreon click on that link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. It doesn't matter how much you want to contribute. Um, You can contribute from as little as $1 a month all the way up to however much you want to offer a month. Some some do $50 a month, and uh, we're incredibly grateful to them. But um, do consider uh, donating and supporting the project so that we can make better podcasts going forward. And, uh, of course, Don't forget to miss out on all those cracking rewards that we give out to all of you who do contribute. The Ancient World Cup So it's quarterfinal stage in the uh, History of the World podcast Ancient World Cup and uh, originally we started with 64 teams and via a process of voting and elimination uh, we are down to the final eight. Now last week we learned uh, that the uh, the Macedonians uh, advanced into the semi-finals at the expense of the Franks. This week, just uh, just gone, we had our second quarter final between the ancient Egyptians and the Sumerians, two of the most ancient civilizations that we know of, and. Um, the votes were all counted up on the, the Facebook page, the History of the World uh, fan group, the History of the World podcast fan group, um, the uh, which is also on Facebook, the unofficial fan group, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Um, so if you follow the podcast on any of those platforms, you'll be able to take part in this competition and, and your vote will be added to the mix. Um, so... This week's result, uh, between the Ancient Egyptians and the Sumerians, um, we had 78 votes. Thank you very much. People were very keen to get involved. Uh, But the winners with 63% of the vote and going through to the semi-final are the Ancient Egyptians. And so uh, the Ancient Egyptians meet the Macedonians and uh, both of them were in the same qualifying group way back in round one. So. Interesting there, uh, and so we'll be uh, watching that semi-final uh, unfold uh, in just uh, two or three weeks' time. Next week is the quarterfinal number three, and that will contain. Let me just uh, get get my uh, get my spreadsheet out. That will contain the Romans going up against the Anglo-Saxons. So um, both, you could say, both of those invaded Britain and um, both of them sort of uh, came and went really. So the Romans uh, very early in the first millennium and the Anglo-Saxons very late in the first millennium. So that's next week's match, so don't forget... History of the World Podcast Facebook page, History of the World Podcast fan group, unofficial Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram. Voting will begin on Monday, so don't forget, get involved, vote for your favourite. Listener messages and reviews. Matthias Barra sent in a message saying, Dear Chris, thank you so much for all your work and efforts. I really enjoy listening to your podcast. I started listening to you Uh, to your podcast by accident after searching for some information about the Scythians. I listened to your volume about these people and realised that I absolutely had to start from the very beginning. This was while cleaving firewood at my family's rural cottage and I thought it would be very fitting to listen to prehistory on a headset while doing manual work preparing firework for next winter. Obviously firework needs to dry for about a year. Now, I cannot stop. I usually listen to your podcast while commuting to work, for which your half-hour format is perfect. I do admit to sometimes spending a few minutes in my car after parking it just to finish the episodes. and I've just listened to the episode on the Macedonian King of Kings and can't wait for the next one on my trip home from work this afternoon. I'm now a proud Patreon. And hopefully I will have more time to write to you at a later time. In the meantime, please keep up, keep up the good, keep up the amazing work. Sincerely, Matthias. Thank you very much for uh, writing in. And also thank you very much for committing to be uh, a patron of the podcast. It's very, very kind of you. Um, Matthias, as we mentioned, Matthias Barra is one of the new uh, patrons for the podcast. So he now becomes a member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, as does Tanner Schofield. Um, So thank you to you both for helping to, uh, you know, keep the podcast in good health. So it really does help when you do that and uh, enables me to invest more into the project generally. So thank you very, very much. Um, Next week and over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be... uh, We're going to be looking at a bit more detail regarding the Hundred Years' War. Um, We'll be looking at the Battle of Cressy next week, followed by the Battle of Agincourt, um, more more familiarly known in in the Anglo-speaking world, the English-speaking world, as the Battle of Agincourt. And uh, then after that, the Siege of Orléans, Um, in which we discover a little bit more about this mysterious peasant girl called Joan, who most of you will already know. Uh, So, uh, until next week, the Battle of Cressy. Come and join me for that one. And make sure, until then, to be good. The History of the World podcast. Written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.